0: So I'm Dr. David DeRose. I'm a medical doctor. I'm a board specialist, board-certified specialist in internal medicine and preventive medicine. If you know much about preventive medicine, residency training, it includes a master's in public health. My MPH emphasized health promotion and health education. So I've done a mix of public health and clinical medicine over the last 30 years or so. I've done it. Um, in many venues, including having the privilege of um, having worked for a short stint as an Adventist pastor, the special emphasis in health ministry. So we are going to begin with our um, second segment. If you were not with us the past hour, Audioverse did record the presentations. They're also going to be getting copies of the slides. So I guess they'll have a a, a video version of the presentation as well. So uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the privilege you've given us of just being here, being able to be with like-minded professionals and their support teams. We're so grateful that you want to teach us how to be more effective in ministering to our patients, to our families, to our communities. Please do that for us today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, We'll get to the uh, learning objectives for this presentation in a moment because what we've done with the uh, consent of those in the previous hour is, since we started a bit late in the last hour, we actually finished on time but left the topic of choice of beverages and how they impact blood pressure to carry over into this presentation. So it's one of the learning objectives from the previous hour. So how do beverages impact our blood pressure? And what are the best blood pressure-lowering beverages? Well, the first message is when it comes to blood pressure, you definitely want to avoid alcohol. Alcohol is not your friend. And by the way, if you haven't seen the, the overwhelming evidence is coming out now in the medical research literature, a number of studies now saying that the safest amount of alcohol to consume is zero, that there is no amount of alcohol that's safe when you look comprehensively at, uh, at health. And um, so there's a number of studies out, one this year, other uh, study that's been out for about five, six years. That's EPIC, the European Perspective Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition. But there's a number of studies showing this. But if you look at blood pressure alone, more than three drinks at a time raises blood pressure significantly. Binge drinking can lead to long-term blood pressure increases. So even if a person is just drinking on the weekends, for example, their blood pressure can be sustained and elevated as a result of that alone. But moderate drinking is also a problem, and it's a problem for several reasons. First of all, alcohol can interfere with blood pressure medication effectiveness, can increase the side effects of blood pressure medicines. But the thing that I'm most worried about when it comes to alcohol is it can undermine weight control efforts. Actually, one of the most calorically dense foods Macronutrients is alcohol. We usually think of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Just a quick review. How many calories per gram in carbohydrates? Calories per gram in carbohydrates. Four. That's correct. How many calories per gram in protein? Four. How many calories per gram in alcohol? Seven. The only thing that's more calorically dense is fat, which is nine calories per gram. So the point is alcohol is very calorically dense, but even of more concern is it works on the frontal lobe. And if you look at research on people, especially who are what we call restrained eaters, they're controlling their appetite, they're pushing themselves away from the table. If you give them a little bit of alcohol, they're much more likely to overeat. So alcohol is not our friend when it comes to weight. And, of course, weight is one of the things that's driving the diabetes and blood pressure epidemics in the Western world. So avoiding alcohol is important. Okay, so we cross alcohol off the list. We'll go with the soft drinks, right? That's got to be better than the alcoholic beverages. Well, they're part of the problem, too, when it comes to weight gain. In fact, some of the data would suggest they are the single biggest problem when it comes to weight gain. Um, Actually, I was sitting... I told you in the last hour I was at some professional meetings uh, American Con- National Congress of American Indians last week or earlier this week, sitting in the airport in Phoenix. We were changing planes on our way from Denver here to, uh, we actually flew into Ontario, rented a car, sitting next to a guy. We got to talking. He told me he'd lost 18 pounds in the last year. What do you think the single lifestyle change he made was? Right, you got rid of the soft drinks. And uh, these sugar-sweetened beverages, just really a huge problem. This is a great review over a decade ago in American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, uh, really looking at a lot of um, the data and how these sugar-sweetened beverages are driving the obesity epidemic. And basic bottom line, you drink 150 calories in a sugar-sweetened beverage, and you will not decrease your consumption at that meal by 150 calories, or in subsequent meals. So you get a lot of calories with relatively little satiety. And uh, we are doing very poorly as Americans. You can see the World Health Organization recommends that we consume no more than 10% of our calories as added sugar. We're about 60% more than that. And the majority, almost the majority, of our added sugar in the American diet is coming from sweet and soft drinks. It's almost 50%. So just that one change. And I've had patients do it too. Just stop the soft drinks. I'm thinking of a guy right now, he lost like 50 or 60 pounds. That's all he changed. Now he was a big guy, okay? But just amazing. Get these uh, calories out. And if you look at what's increasing in our diet, it is those sweetened soft drinks more than anything else contributing to our sugar intake. Over the course of one year, what would 150 calories difference do to your weight? It's a real simple calculation. If you look at daily increase in calories, just divide it by 10. So if you were to consume 150 calories a day more throughout the course of a year and you change nothing else, nothing else in your caloric intake or expenditure, you would gain 15 pounds over the course of a year. really adds up. Okay, that's it. Diet soft drinks, they're the winners when it comes to hypertension, right? Well, actually, if you look at the data on diet soft drinks, they actually increase the risk of the very things that are associated with high blood pressure. This is a study looking at uh, strokes and diet soft drink consumption from um, Manhattan, there in New York City, multi-ethnic study, about 2,500 people. And what you see is if you want your lowest risk of vascular events like stroke and heart attack, You want to avoid what? The diet, soft drinks. Well, you knew the answer all along, didn't you? Just stick with water and, of course, your coffee so you can get going in the morning, right? How is caffeine when it comes to blood pressure? It's actually a very interesting topic. But uh, if you look at what we call acute effects of caffeine, they're actually substantial. I mean, they can raise systolic blood pressure as much as 15 points, diastolic blood pressure in a similar range. But the critics of, of this kind of data, they say, well, but once you become a habituated coffee drinker, your blood pressure really doesn't go up much. And yes, it's true. Your blood pressure doesn't go up anywhere near as much as if you're caffeine naive, but Some years ago, Jack James wrote in the journal Psychosomatic Medicine a a review that I thought had a very telling title, Critical Review of Dietary Caffeine and Blood Pressure, a Relationship that Should Be Taken More Seriously. So what was Dr. James telling his fellow professionals? Don't minimize the effect of caffeine on blood pressure. That's what he's saying, right? We need to take it more seriously. And perhaps the reason we don't take it more seriously is we have the coffee pots in the doctor's lounges, right? And at the nurse's stations. Is that possible? Can our own lifestyle affect our choices? Here's how uh, James concluded his review. Extensive evidence that caffeine at dietary doses increases blood pressure. It is true that we become less sensitive to caffeine's effects, but, but... Even, even when a person is using this habitually, there still are pressure effects. That means the caffeine still tends to raise blood pressure. And it will raise it in the range of four points systolic and two points diastolic. Oh come on, you say. I mean, it's nothing. Four points systolic? Now, if you're looking at the construct that we're looking at, we're talking about ten different categories that affect our blood pressure. If you look at 10 different categories, all of which affect your blood pressure four points, how much could you affect blood pressure cumulatively if it was additive? Huge, yeah, 40 points, right? But even this small a change, population-wide, if you look at the data, that would decrease premature deaths from coronary heart disease by 14% and stroke by 20%. So even just lowering population blood pressure by that range, it would make a huge impact. I don't understand that. You don't understand it? So not well known? Oh, I hear what you're saying. So you're saying, don't doctors know that caffeine raises blood pressure? Because some you know of doctors that have prescribed caffeine for someone with low blood pressure. Um, you might think that doctors know, but this is not something that is typically, um, edu- patients are not typically educated to avoid caffeine. In fact, the av- in my experience, the average physician would say it's not significant, okay? Um, you know, it's interesting. The, uh, the biggest effects of caffeine, the biggest concerns I have with it, are moral and behavioral. Someone else in the last hour was saying, well, do you have more on circulation, more on inflammation? We're just finishing up a book right now called The Methuselah Factor. It's about hemorheology That's the science of blood fluidity. And uh, caffeine has a, a major impact on this, too, impairing optimal circulation. But uh, let, I'm going to actually just quote you something uh, from the book. Um, I'm just going to read it to you. So this is... Uh, Perhaps an even more amazing example of the connections between caffeine and bad habits, we're speaking about the connection between choices and caffeine use. Caffeine has been called bad habit glue by some neurophysiologists. So an even more amazing example of these connections came from a widely touted study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The publicized take on this large study, with data initially coming from over 600,000 people, this is an AARP study, Uh, data from uh, uh, retired persons in in America, was that coffee drinking helped people live longer. That's right. As one related press release expressed it, want to live longer? Question mark. What was the answer? Drink coffee. So this came out in 2012. I saw that uh, the the early press releases. I'd not yet seen the New England Journal report. I said, i got to look at this study. It just came out. I hadn't seen it. I mean, how could this be? Caffeine. Coffee, helping people live longer. By the way, you've, other studies have come out implying the same thing. Let's, let's look at... The, this is the first one that I know of that actually in a huge data set that uh, suggested this. This is a quote now, okay? quote from the actual paper. When the raw data was analyzed, the researchers observed, and I'm quoting right from that New England Journal of Medicine paper, in age-adjusted analyses, coffee consumption was associated with increased mortality among both men and women. Now, you as health professionals know what that means. I've tried to put it in the vernacular because this is in a book for the lay public. In other words, when comparing two people of the same age, the one who drinks the most coffee is most likely to die first. That's what the article said. Do you remember what the press release said? Drink more coffee, what happens? You live longer. I'm looking at the raw data. I'm reading this. this is, I'm reading the, the results and the discussion in the paper. The more coffee you drink, what happened? The sooner you died. So how can the study come out saying that you live longer by drinking more coffee? Hang in there. You'll get a little epidemiology lesson. When they looked at the association between coffee drinking and other bad habits they found something very interesting. The more coffee you drank, as a rule, in this huge population, huge retired population in the United States, the more likely you were to smoke and smoke more. The more likely you were to drink more than three alcoholic beverages daily. The more likely you were to eat more red meat. The more likely you were to have lower educational attainments, neglect vigorous physical activity, and consume fewer fruits and vegetables. Now, what I'd like to suggest to you, what they proved is exactly what we would have postulated based on the concerns that Ellen White raised about caffeinated beverages decades ago. She spoke about the mental and moral effects. She didn't say, don't drink coffee because you'll die sooner. Okay? I don't read anything like that. Maybe there's something there, but I don't read that. She was concerned about the behavioral and the moral effects. And this is what the, the neurophysiologists are saying. If you want to develop healthy lifestyle habits, don't have caffeine. Because caffeine makes it more likely to stick with your bad habits. So you've got this huge data set, and what do you find? All the things that people are being educated not to do, like they shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't drink so much, you shouldn't eat so much red meat. When you're drinking caffeine, you're more likely to be doing all those things. Do you see what I'm saying? It's just what you would predict. Now, here's the interesting part of it, though because some of you know a bit about statistics and epidemiology, what you can do is you can control for all the things that something else is associated with to try to just look at the factor in isolation. So what they tried to do is they tried to control for all the bad things that caffeine was associated with, coffee specifically was associated with, and they came to the conclusion that coffee actually helped you live longer. Now, you should be very suspect when the raw data shows you one thing and you do a bunch of statistical analyses and you come to a totally opposite conclusion, okay? But the lay public sees the headlines, you know, major landmark study, drinking coffee helps you live longer. And they never read <laughs> the fine print that the more coffee you drank, the sooner you died. I mean that, And I'm smiling about it, but it's tragic, isn't it? And so what I'm saying is the message that that God's given us is relevant to what people are hearing today and and what they're being misinformed about. Well, you know then, of course, what should we be drinking? There's no surprises. You say, why did we take all this time? We all knew that we should just be drinking water. But the more ammunition we have to help our patients, I think the better off we are. If you haven't seen this uh, study from uh, Loma Linda years ago back in 2002, Really excellent uh, data from the Adventist health study, basically showing it doesn't take a lot more water drinking to protect you from a fatal heart attack. Uh, in the Adventist health study, the difference was uh, only a few glasses a day. We weren't talking about huge amounts of water, just in five, five, more than five glasses of water per day compared to less than two. basically cuts your risk of a fatal heart attack in half. It's not true with other beverages. You probably gathered that already from most all the other beverage classes we looked at. Research actually suggests that uh, water drinking can help with weight loss, not just by substituting for calories, but actually because of metabolic effects. And water-only fasting has powerful blood pressure lowering effects, so powerful, in fact, that I do not recommend patients who are on medications for blood pressure or diabetes just go on a water-only fast without working with a doctor who's adjusting their medications. And uh, I won't spend any more time than that, but uh, Dr. Goldhammer has published uh, that research. So now we're on where we were supposed to be at the beginning of this lecture with the blood pressure-lowering environment. So the objectives for the, uh, the rest of this uh, presentation are as follows. We're going to try to list five simple ways a person can enhance the blood pressure lowering potential of his or her environment. We're going to enumerate at least three simple strategies to deal with noise pollution. We'll see why that's important. How can social connectedness help you in dealing with stress? And then we'll look at the medical literature as it relates to spiritual factors and blood pressure. We'll try to cover all of that in our remaining time together. The clock actually ends for us right at 410. Am I oriented, Steve? Is 410 our official ending time? Okay, so that's what we've got ahead of us. Okay, so let's talk about environment and blood pressure. So for those of you who are just joining us, we're looking at a construct, looking at different natural strategies to address high blood pressure. We're using what we call the no pressure approach. 10 different areas. We've talked some about nutrition and optimal choice of beverages. We're talking now about environment. What in our environment can affect our blood pressure? There are a number of things in environment that actually influence blood pressure. We're gonna talk about three, at least briefly, and that is quiet, sunshine, and fresh air. Really interesting data on quiet and how that can affect blood pressure or conversely, how noise can affect blood pressure. The more road traffic noise you're exposed to, the higher your blood pressure will tend to be. If you live in a more noisy environment, your blood pressure will be higher than if you live in a more quiet environment. In the uh, research findings, if you look at how close you live to a major road, that is a direct predictor of what your blood pressure will be. Now, you say, well, Dr. Jones, I can't change where I live. I'm stuck. I mean, I've got a reverse mortgage. What can I do? You can actually move where your bedroom is. They've actually shown if you just move your bedroom to the side of the house or the side of the apartment that has less road traffic noise, your blood pressure will go down. So we're coming up with some practical strategies to deal with noise. One is you could move to the country. Okay. Second one is you could move your bedroom if you can't move your house. And now there is a third strategy. By the way, this has been studied, this strategy has been studied in some of the most noisy environments in the world. Do you know what some of the most noisy environments in the world are? They're found where some of you work, in intensive care units. Did you know that? They're very noisy places. And so they've done research on just giving patients earplugs and blinders, dramatically improving not only their sleep, but also some of these physiologic parameters. Isn't that interesting? So noise, a lot of us don't think about it, but people say, well, listen, I'm eating well, I'm exercising, what else can I do for my blood pressure? Control noise in your environment. Mechanism, it's probably activating your sympathetic nervous system, and anything that activates those stress hormones will tend to raise blood pressure. Okay, let's talk about some other things in the environment. Sunshine. Well, there's a number of lines of evidence that suggest that uh, sunshine lowers blood pressure. Many people think it uh, is a result of vitamin D. Some debate whether it's a vitamin D relationship, but um, much of the data points us in that direction. So we're suggesting that people optimize their vitamin D status. Of course, there's a multitude of benefits that... uh, Vitamin D offers it has immune enhancing effects, bone health effects, anti-inflammatory effects. It does also seem to have anti-hypertensive effects. You say, "Well, I'll just go out in the sun." Well, unfortunately, because of uh, the ultraviolet B rays that we need to make um, vitamin D in the skin, you have to be well. You have to be in a place where the sun comes high enough above the horizon that the ultraviolet rays can get through the ozone, those UVB rays, and you can make vitamin D. This is from a review by Dr. Hollick. Michael Hollick is one of the world experts on vitamin D. And it shows you what the data indicates. And that is, if you live uh, in Boston, there's going to be about four months of the year where even if you go out and sunbathe on a roof, if the weather's conducive and you could do it, you're not going to make vitamin D. If you come from my wife's father's birthplace, Bergen, Norway, it's six months of the year. Now, here's what's really interesting. We uh, lived and worked in Maine for a while, and we'd ask uh, the old Mainers sometimes, did they have to do anything during the winter months? And they would say, many of them, would say, we had to take cod liver oil. They would usually not say it with a smile. And do you know what cod liver oil happens to be a rich source of? Vitamin D. So um, some of these dots were you know, just connected by observation. Maybe it was they noticed their kids had less colds or things because vitamin D has immune-enhancing effects, but uh, very interesting nonetheless. So here's what we recommend. If you live at a latitude further than 35 degrees north or south of the equator, Take a vitamin D supplement during those relevant portions of the year. What about fresh air? What is the single biggest threat to fresh air as it relates to blood pressure? Yes, tobacco smoke. That is correct. Do you have any idea how much a single cigarette can raise your blood pressure? Yeah, every cigarette raises blood pressure. It's a, it's a short effect, usually returns back to normal within 30 minutes. Uh, the effect seems to be greatest typically with that first cigarette, and let's actually look at what it is. Look at this. Within four minutes, a 25-point rise in blood pressure. Now, it's interesting to me as a physician, we, we often tell patients, you'll read guidelines, you know, make sure you haven't had a cigarette in a half an hour if we're going to check your blood pressure. So we want to know what it, you know, what it runs. But if this person's a habitual smoker, what are they doing? All day long, they're keeping their blood pressure elevated by nicotine. So it's interesting. Well, we don't want to measure their pressure, but really their ambulatory pressure, if you're monitoring it, is going to be significantly elevated because they're smoking throughout the day. So this is why a lot of the guidelines you know, that are starting to emerge are saying we need to look at ambulatory blood pressures. What is it really in the free-living situation? But uh, cigarette smoking is a significant concern. And by the way, we don't have time to talk about it here. But from a vascular standpoint, early data is suggesting that marijuana smoke is worse than tobacco smoke. So if you haven't seen some of that data, it has worse effects on the vasculature uh, than tobacco smoke. And that's even secondhand marijuana smoke. So I know some of you are not interested in that topic at all. I'm speaking a bit facetiously. I think we should all be interested in it. Because um, if you're not already having all kinds of patients coming into your office thinking this is the new wonder drug, um, it's uh, it's being sadly misrepresented in the literature. You say, well, okay, we're not going to smoke. We're not going to, you know, but we're going to chew or dip. Well, even the smokeless tobaccos are associated with blood pressure elevations. I was speaking with an audience about this once showing them some of this data, like why would uh, smokeless tobacco raise blood pressure? It's not just the nicotine, but uh, the smokeless tobacco often has high sodium content, and it often, many of them have licorice, and licorice is a blood pressure-raising effect. I was telling an audience this, and I heard an audible gasp from the back of the room. <laughs> it turned out it was uh, a woman of uh, German background who had a special fondness for licorice that she had grown up with. I don't know if it's more popular in Europe than it is here in, uh, in the States. And uh, she apparently had high blood pressure. So this was her moment of illumination, that maybe her uh, licorice consumption was contributing to her blood pressure. Well, here's one of um, my favorite topics, because this what we're trying, trying to help us uh, see this material, not only from the standpoint of clinical medical practice, but also our role in our communities. And I think every one of us, if we're health professionals, should be involved in ministry at a church-based level, at least supporting it in some way. You say, you know, Dr. DeRose, I am spread so thin, I can't do one more thing. And I respect that. But um, do what you can to um, encourage health evangelism in your local church. And one of the things that you can do is just show up and um, live a healthy lifestyle. Do you realize that, that your example is powerful? And uh, and people realize what your example is. Did, did you know that you don't have to advertise it? I got involved in health evangelism without ever wanting to do it. I started going to a small church when I was a resident, and in that small church, after a short while, some people came up to me and said, "We need you to give a nutrition seminar at our church." I'd never given a nutrition seminar. I said, well, why do, you, why do you think I need to give you a nutrition seminar? They said, we've been watching you at potlucks. You know, you need to tell us how to eat here as a church. Well, it's a long story behind that. And there are some, you know, you want to be careful in these kind of circumstances. But my point is, it's your lifestyle is where things start. Social support is especially interesting. And uh, researchers have looked at social support in relation to blood pressure by the way, when we talk about social support, do you realize we're talking about why your churches are so important as agencies for lifestyle change in your communities? Do you realize we're more disconnected than ever before as a society? You know, we have more ways to connect, but we're more disconnected, Have you've thought about that or seen data on that. So, yeah, we have all these friends all over the world and, you know, we, you know, we have all these Facebook friends and stuff, but people, there's no one they can turn to uh, to talk about their deepest problems, you know, other than someone online that isn't really there, maybe can't support them in any tangible ways. So, um, social support is really a needed commodity and it's very important when it comes to blood pressure. It's actually a biblical commodity and even uh, Christians... Some are, you know, not attending worship. Maybe even Seventh Day Adventists that you know—they say, "Well, you know, there's a better preacher on TV than we have here in our home church." So we'll just, you know, turn on the Hope Channel or turn on Three ABN. Have you heard things like that? But we need to come together, and this is data from the endocrinology literature. This is a simple case control study that just underscores this point that we're making. And that is, as you look at different markers of social connectedness or social support, the more socially connected people tend to be, be the better their blood pressure tends to be. And again, it seems to relate to stress hormone uh, reactivity. And uh, they've actually measured some of this. And they actually find that uh, it is worse in individuals with low social support. Now, this is a really fascinating paper. I, you know, papers that especially fascinate, fascinate me are often ones that I can't fully understand. This was some uh, very technical, uh, what we call, spatial analysis. They were actually looking at the spread of obesity in America. So although I couldn't understand all the uh, specific ways they were, these researchers were mapping this, it was very, very interesting. Because what they found, this is probably the most telling graphic, they found that... Obesity in America, over the decades, had been spreading like an infectious disease. So if you were mapping obesity, and you look at the, the spread of obesity, you would say this isn't just random. You would say there is a disease that started in Greene County, Alabama, and it just started to spread throughout the Southeast and then has extended to affect most of America. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well. The significance of it is what these authors were looking at. And now, some of their conclusions, I think, are a little bit, uh, oh, taken a little bit too far. But they're basically saying that social and societal factors may ultimately be greater determinants of obesity than our personal choices. And um, you might know, say, well, how is that taking it too far? Because, again, if you were with us the past hour, And uh, we have mentioned this a little bit, these social determinants of health. What are we doing in the social milieu that we live in that can actually change the environment? How can we make it easier for people to make healthy decisions and more difficult to make bad decisions? And, And your churches are to be bastions, I believe, in your communities of healthy living. So if you haven't thought of your church that way, I'm challenging you to think of it that way because it's supported by the research literature. Here's what they're saying where we live and who we keep company with may be among the most important factors when it comes to weight optimization. What does all this have to do with high blood pressure? Well, if you were with us the first hour, or if you just know much about the epidemiology of high blood pressure, the more you weigh, the more your blood pressure tends to be. Now, it gets even more interesting. This is from one of the family practice journals. They're looking at a problem that we have in America, and that is we don't have enough providers to optimally care for the burden of chronic diseases that we have in our country. The paper came out about six years ago, delegating responsibility from clinicians to non-professional personnel, the example of hypertension control. So people that are looking at systems, they're saying, if we're going to optimally control high blood pressure, what do we have to do? We have to start involving non-professionals. How many of you have heard about a movement in America that tries to help non-professionals realize that they have a role in the health of their communities? Have you heard about this movement? It's called the Seventh-day Adventist Church. No, really. I mean, have you? Think about it. I mean, God, God has been giving us this vision that we're to be involved in, in health I minutes, mean, part of our churches. I mean, I've sat as a pastor in ministerial meetings, and, and everyone's talking about well, how can we reach our communities? And no one talks about health. I've I've been there. You know, they're talking about you know having a tiddlywinks club or something. Now don't misunderstand me. I don't I'm not saying it's wrong to have a tiddlywinks club. I'm not saying it's right to have one either. Okay, don't don't but but the point is, how can we talk about being relevant to our communities as churches and not talk about having a, a vibrant health ministry presence? Now, maybe since I'm talking to health professionals, I'm just speaking to the choir. But, but do you see my point? I, I think we have to be serious about this. I know many of you are. Well, in this paper, they're saying, basically, we need to basically have coaches in our communities And really, I think our churches are ideal places. I know Weimar is doing a lot with training their students. They have a six-month program where they train students on being active in their churches and having this role as being coaches. How can you work with people as coaches? I shared with you in the last hour some of the results from a program that we have. It uses four sets of DVDs and a book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control book. And then we have a bridge series called Healing Insights from the Gospel of Mark. But basically, what we're doing is whether people use the DVD-based resources or whether they use the free resources that we talked about in the last hour that I'll, I'll recap for you who just joined us here, we're seeing significant changes. Now, this is a small series, these are three community-based programs. These are all church-based, Adventist church-based programs throughout the country, several different places. And uh, you can see 25 individuals went through these programs who had high blood pressure using a criteria of a systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 140. And you can see over the course of a four to eight week program, so it's designed as a 30 day program, but it can be run over eight weeks. There's eight modules, DVD based modules for the program. And you can see an average drop in systolic blood pressure about 17 points, diastolic blood pressure about eight points. So, do you have a comment, a question? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the question is, so this is after a month. Could a person lower it further at 140, and could they lower 78 down to 72? We could say, well, theoretically they could, but I mean, the data we have is just the data we have, so we only have data for the... for the 4 week program or 8 week program depending on what frame they ran it over but the point is this is a mean so obviously there's some people who lowered it below 140 and others who didn't get it that low cuz that's the you know basically the average of the 25 subjects okay Okay, yeah, so the question is, okay, fair enough, fair enough. So the question is, you know, when do you use medications? And, of course, we use medications in anyone who has, who has a dangerously high blood pressure. And how high is dangerously high? I mean, of course, um, you know, in, a, in an acute setting, 160, 180 range, you're probably going to do something. 160, maybe not. 180 for sure. We're probably going to not have them leave without a medication. Um, You know, 100 diastolic, probably for sure they're going to leave on a medication, even if we educate them on lifestyle, and then we're going to try to get them off that drug. Uh, Unless we thought there was something unique going on, if there was some, you know, serious trauma or something. But let me just tell you a true story. Um, At this National Congress of American Indians, where we were earlier this week, the Adventist Church puts on a screening there. They've done it every year for a number of years. And one of the fellows who was at that screening last year came back to the booth. And he told his story. He said when he came, his blood pressure was in the range of 180 over 130 last year. He said the person from the Adventist church that screened him, we have nurses and doctors and others there that are doing the screenings, said, uh, we don't want to let you go. And he said, you can't keep me here. But he said after, um, after that experience, he'd not seen a doctor in 18 years. Um, he went to see his doctor. By the way, if you're wondering why I have this detailed story, I host a weekly radio show called American Indian Living. And he actually joined me for a segment on the show. So his name was Jeff. And usually we don't tell patients' names, but he's, the whole world's going to hear his name. Okay, So he's fine with it. Anyway, so Jeff's telling his story. And he, uh, he goes back to his room. He says, I've got to change my lifestyle. He says, I'm going to stop drinking. And I guess he was drinking quite heavily. So he stops drinking. He comes back now to the screening, saw his doctor, got on some medication, whatever. Uh, he's off the drugs apparently now. But he's lost 140 pounds. Now, he was a bad guy, a uh, bad guy, <laughs> big guy. He weighed, uh, he probably said he was a bad guy too. But he weighed um, over 400 pounds. So he's down now to like 260. Um, He's still got some weight to lose. But um, interesting thing, you're not going to lose 140 pounds in a month. So I, I share that example with you, because some changes do take a long while. Weight loss is one of them. So we'll see benefits from diet quicker than we will see benefits from getting to your optimal weight if you've got, you know, 150 pounds to lose. So, yes, you know, we individualize things, and I want, I want a person, I, I don't, I'm not happy with someone's blood pressure running consistently over 140, over 90. So they're going to be on medication if they can't with, you know, initial lifestyle changes, get it below that. So they'll be on medication, then we'll try to back them off the medication as they stick with the program, as they lose weight, as they improve their diet, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So um, I told you we had free resources for you last hour. Some of you were asking me at the break where they are. If you go to compasshealth.net, that's my website. That's the best place you can get uh, PowerPoint slides. You can get scripts of materials. You can get free uh, videos there. And uh, one of the resources I told you about was this um, compasshealth.net slash health-sabbath, health-sabbath. If you can't get there, just by navigating on the Compass Health website under our free materials, just use this uh, address, compasshealth.net slash health hyphen Sabbath. If you go there, it'll take you right to the NAD website. And by the way, Angie David, the NAD, Dr. David is the director of the NAD uh, Health Department. She will be here in this very room giving the next hour presentation. But uh, she and her team have a health Sabbath every year. And in 2018, the health Sabbath was on heart health and especially on blood pressure. And so um, my colleague who helped write our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, Trudy Lee, she's a nurse practitioner. She actually adapted our materials, put the PowerPoint slides all together for you, gave you scripts if you want scripts, so that you can have um, more than the materials that we touched on in these last two hours. They're available for you there. Uh, What we developed more recently is this program. If you go to YouTube and you type in 30 days to natural diabetes and blood pressure control, we have 30 daily five to six minute videos where I walk people through a lifestyle program. And the reason why it's diabetes and high blood pressure is I'm doing a lot of work with diabetes among Native Americans. And uh, we're finding that they may think they have a great program at their, their tribal health clinic for diabetes but they're not addressing high blood pressure. And we start speaking about high blood pressure and diabetes together, and they start looking at lifestyle. They realize often that there's more material that they need. So we prepared these uh, 30 daily five-minute videos that can be, uh, can be watched. You can use them in conjunction with things that you're doing at your church, in your office. Um, I know a diabetes educator in one of the tribal health clinics, she's showing some of these to her patients when they come for diabetes education sessions. Well, we want to conclude by talking about stress management and exercising faith in God. This is um, actually, I think, very uh, very interesting and practical material, and it does relate to uh, scientific data. So we've been walking you through this uh, this construct that's in our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. The 14th chapter in this book, which is the, the last major chapter, is on spiritual health. It's actually called uh, Spiritual Health Neglected Dimensions. That's the uh, kind of a spin-off of the book chapter. It's a, um, the DVD that we have that, that complements the book. For those of you that didn't hear in the last hour, Dr. Steinke, who was supposed to present with me, is um, in the midst of a uh, cross-country transition. He had been practicing for a number of years in the Northwest, and he's relocated to the Collegedale, Tennessee area, So he's um, staying by the home front, keeping his priorities straight while we uh, carry on without him. So I told the the group the first hour that if you have any complaints about what was not covered, it's all Dr. Steinke's fault. If he were here, we wouldn't have had such glaring oversights, okay? But don't blame him because I gave him permission not to come. He wanted to make sure we could still limp along without him. But anyway, spiritual health, neglected dimensions. Let me tell you what we've tried to do. We've tried to actually package many of the truths that God's given us in his word and given to us as Seventh-day Adventists in a way that would be that would let's put it this way in a way that would not unnecessarily antagonize people from any spiritual walk so whether they're Buddhists New Age Atheist, Agnostics how could you do that? How could you present biblical principles and uh, discussions about spiritual health? Let me just kind of walk you through just an overview of the construct. We can't go through it all, and then I'll show you some data. But um, basically, we talk with people in the chapter and in the video that there really is a question that is resonating throughout the world right now, and that is, is religion good or bad? And if you haven't heard this, it's really happening all around us. When people talk about things happening often religion is brought into the discussion. And you may hear people saying, oh, I wish everyone was, you know, religious, if they were more spiritual, if everyone was just like Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama, what a wonderful world this would be. Have you heard things like that? The flip side is, you know, religion causes all the problems in the world. There's all kinds of fighting. It's because of religion. We'd all just be better off if we were, you know, atheists, just intelligent atheists. So as a a physician... You know, I don't have much credibility in the world to speak on the subject of whether religion is absolutely good or bad, but at least I have some credibility, and you do too as health professionals, to speak about whether religion is good or bad for health, right? We can look at data. We can look at connections between spirituality and religion and health. There's a lot that's been looked at. And so um, in this chapter 14 and in the video, like I said, we look at connections between spirituality and health. And you'll see there's a number of Benefits associated with measures of both spirituality and active practice of religion, both when sometimes they call it intrinsic religiosity, you know, it's like prayer and meditation, extrinsic religiosity, like attending church or worship, and benefits. And especially when we speak about blood pressure and cardiovascular disease, there is data showing that you're more likely to have lower blood pressure, less hypertension, less cardiovascular disease, and a longer lifespan if you prioritize spirituality and religion. Well, this is uh, some interesting data, looking at these two different dimensions of spirituality. Regular church attendance in uh, the literature has been shown in general to be favorable to blood pressure, And these benefits aren't explained by other lifestyle factors like avoiding smoking or socioeconomic status. They try to control for these things. There's something about regular church attendance that's beneficial. But um, there is evidence that an individual's personal spirituality the personal importance of religion is even more beneficial for lowering blood pressure than church attendance. So the bottom line is both are important. So when you are attending church and the pastor says, you know, prioritize your personal devotional life, he's not just speaking about spiritual principles. You could say he's speaking about a health principle. Now, there's a number of examples of this. I'm not going to spend time on all of them. But let's look at this. This is um, very interesting. Harold Koenig is one of the uh, world uh, leaders in research on spirituality and health. He's based there at Duke University. Uh, Some of you have uh, seen him. He's very friendly toward uh, Seventh-day Adventists. And uh, Dr. Koenig and his colleague reviewed some 3,200 studies looking at spirituality and health. They found that 63 of those 3,200 papers looked at connections between religiosity and blood pressure. Now, 57% showed that increased religion and spirituality lowered blood pressure or caused less hypertension, was associated with it. But 11% showed the opposite. More spirituality had higher blood pressure. So what would you do with data like that? Well, you'd start to ask the question, well, you know, spirituality and religion isn't just homogenous, right? There's different forms of spirituality, different forms of religion. So although people often want to talk about how spirituality and religion is good for you, even in the literature, what uh, we're saying, and what I would suggest that you can say to your patients, to your communities, it really depends on what kind of spirituality and religion you have. There's actually data to support that. Koenig himself and some other uh, co-investigators uh, looked at this in a different context. They were looking with people who were dealing with significant illness, and they actually found that there was, a, there was certain types of spirituality that actually hastened their demise. They were more likely to die if they had what uh, they, the authors described as a religious struggle with illness. And they actually had several questions, several types of lines of thinking that illustrated what they called a religious struggle. So uh, the person was wondering whether God had abandoned them. They were questioning God's love for them. Um, they thought that the devil basically was in charge of things that were happening in their life. Now, we would say, well, that's true. I mean, the devil is doing all kinds of bad things. But this is more of that fatalistic outlook that basically your, your life is just being ruined by, uh, by Satan. And it really, you'd say all of these things undermine God's goodness and God's work in your life. So there is a type of spirituality that's detrimental. And this is, so this is, this is medical CME. This is based on the research literature. We're just going through what uh, medical research has shown. And basically my point is to divorce spirituality from these discussions when we speak about chronic disease. To divorce religion is actually not doing our patients a service. So to me, and to um, some of those who've worked with me on this, spirituality's neglected dimension is to find something across spiritual orientations, across the the spectrum of spirituality that actually can can talk with people about what kind of principles, what kind of principles can you champion as a church that that actually will resonate across your community. And uh, what we suggest is that perhaps the very best thing, best summary in antiquity, Of of an approach to spirituality that's health enhancing is the Sermon on the Mount. And you say, well, we know the Sermon on the Mount. But I would suggest to you if you look at the principles underlying the Sermon on the Mount, they're actually principles that every, pretty much every major religious group would agree with. No one says it's bad to be humble. No one says it's bad to try to make peace. Okay, I mean, You might say, well, Dr. DeRose, I'd debate that on. Well, in general, though, and I've, I had a Muslim patient who looked at uh, the chapter we have, and he said, you know, he resonated with that completely. I had a New Age patient who said, you know, this just really there are some people that have a problem with anything with the name of God in it, but if a person is open-minded, and they, and they look at the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, what we do, and you have resources. On that free website, we go through medical data that shows that all these things can help you lower your blood pressure. If you wondered what that was, that was a summary of the Beatitudes. Okay? Okay? Those of you that were here, the few of you that were here the last hour, I told you we uh, had submitted a paper recently to a medical journal that looks at uh, these type of topics. We entitled it, Spirituality is a Component of Complementary Approaches to High Blood Pressure Control. Does the nature of the spiritual intervention make a difference? And it was a report from a case series. I gave full disclosure to the last group and told them that this particular journal told us that they didn't really want to publish a case series. They really wanted us to do a prospective randomized trial, which we have not done yet, but we thought this was very interesting because what we did is we worked with a small lifestyle center in Europe, and we actually did two different interventions. One of them used this Beatitudes-based approach, gave the scientific rationale for why these different principles were health-enhancing. And the other, we did a different biblical spiritual approach that was more based on the great controversy. And we found that those who did the approach that was focused on the blessings of the Beatitudes had markedly better blood pressure results in the program than those that um, had a different spiritual focus. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think the great controversy is an important theme to understand. But in the course of one week's time, to people that weren't exposed to this, uh, this did not seem to be as health-enhancing as talking with them about blessings. If you really think about it, this is what we wrote in the paper we submitted. The Beatitudes are God's pronouncement of blessing even in situations where a person might be tempted to question their blessedness. For example, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are you when men revile you. Thus the Beatitudes present a God who comes close to his people Blessing those who are in adversity. These concepts seem calculated to help foster positive religious coping. So we were talking about some of the reasons why might an approach based on the Beatitudes especially help blood pressure. So my whole point is this. What we've been trying to share with you over the course of the last two hours, and especially in this hour, is that there's a range of things, natural things that we can do that can help control blood pressure. And an important part of the equation is the spiritual part of the equation. And I would suggest that even though we just have some very preliminary evidence of this, there's plenty of literature basis that the elements of the Beatitudes can help people lower their blood pressure. But we're also even seeing some in our experience and some data that we've collected that these are especially powerful in helping people with chronic lifestyle diseases. And they're accepted by people across The spiritual spectrum. You can talk about humility and peacemaking and and some of these virtues. What I will tell you, though, especially interesting, because it comes from the perspective of the Sermon on the Mount, in fairness to people, I felt we had to share the cultural context of the Sermon on the Mount, which means if you read through the 14th chapter in that book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, you'll read about sin, and you'll read about salvation, You'll read about the state of the dead and the Sabbath. All these things were part of the cultural context in which Jesus spoke. So in the course of talking to people across spiritual lines, we actually exposed them to most all of the major teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And so, and I, what I'm just telling you, some people would say, oh, well, this is a very creative way to bridge people you know, to an evangelistic series or something. Well, you can use it that way. But what I'm telling you is that we're not just talking about bridging people. We're talking about ministering to people. And the things that we sometimes think of as bridging people to, to more spiritual events, these are actually things that actually help people right where they're at. And uh, if you look through that chapter, you look through some of our free material online, I think you'll see that come out. Well, We have a few minutes if you feel like there's some major loose ends that were not addressed. It's chapter 14. Chapter 14. Mm-hmm. Okay, the question is about decaffeinated coffee. Um, there's, there's concerns about decaffeinated coffee as well. So the, caffeine is not seen to be the only thing that's less desirable for um, your circulation in, um, in coffee. There are also a, a class of compounds called caffeols. Um, and one of the things that they seem to raise, some of the compounds in coffee, even in decaf, raise homocysteine which is kind of a rogue amino acid that is felt to be involved in inflammatory processes in the body. So I don't think decaffeinated coffee is, um, is necessarily the best option either. For people with digestive issues, even decaffeinated coffee can have some adverse gastric consequences as well. OK? Other questions or comments? Mm-hmm. Oh, OK. Um, We don't, uh, we didn't, we do, well, let me just answer the question instead of, because we did have a few minutes. Um, I sometimes prescribe juices for people who have weight problems and other, uh, weight problems in the sense of needing to gain weight, okay? Because the very reason that we just saw, uh, liquid calories give you relatively little satiety per calorie. That's true of juices as well. So if someone's trying to gain weight, we might have them drink some juice a half an hour before meal uh, so that they're not really eating or drinking between meals so much. It kind of, but it doesn't seem to be fully compensated during the meal, so it can be useful in that context. But the average person who's overweight, if they think juicing is one of the strategies to lose weight, in my experience for most patients, that is not a good strategy, again, because you get calories with relatively little satiety. Okay. So if it's helping you and you're active and you're trim and it's helping you to maintain your weight, otherwise you'd waste away, then uh, I'm supportive of it. Well, we have one minute, so a 30-second question and a 30-second answer. Green tea. Okay. Well, green tea, of course, has caffeine in it, so uh, I have concerns about it from that standpoint. Are there some good things in green tea? Uh, There are some good things in green tea. By the way, there's even some good things in tobacco and, and other compounds. So uh, there's something called EGCG, catechogalate or something. It has some powerful antioxidant effects. But the point is you can get powerful antioxidants from other foods as well. So the thing is we don't have to dis tea totally. You know, my burden is not to tell people that there's nothing beneficial in it, but just that there are better options. And, in fact, that should be one of our, our key focal points in health education. If you don't remember, Ellen White said... Our, if you want to use the modern term mantra, should be what? Something better. Something better. Okay, on that note, we need to close. Let's close with a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you haven't left us just at the whims of the scientific winds that sometimes seem to blow, and even sometimes seem to blow with data supporting them. But you've actually given us insights that are holding holding up under the the most rigorous scientific scrutiny. Help us to realize that we actually have been entrusted with a message that the world is literally longing for and literally dying for. We pray that you'd help us each know better how we can be involved in medical evangelism in our practices, in our churches, in our homes, in our communities. Please help us to that end. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse